0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Playbook by Outlier Academy, where we decode what iconic founders, renowned investors, best-selling authors, and outlier thinkers have mastered, and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, we dive deep to uncover the tools, strategies, habits, routines, and hacks that we can all apply in our own work and lives, all in about 20 minutes. I'm Dana Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Emmy Gall. Emmy is the founder and CEO of Ezra, where he's focused on bringing fast and affordable cancer screening to everyone. Since founding Ezra in 2018, Ezra has managed to bring down the cost of MRI cancer screening by 80% and the time required to get your body scanned by 66%. And in a short order of time, they think they can get that down to 90%, all by harnessing the power of AI and machine learning. And you're in for a real treat because this episode is just packed with incredible ideas from how Emmy has been tracking 150 different biomarkers for the last five years to why he's focused on reaching peak fitness by age 40 to the yearly challenges he's pushed himself to do over the last decade and more. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at Outlier Academy slash 145. That's Outlier Academy slash 145. Please enjoy my conversation with Ezra's Emmy Gall. Emmy, thank you so much for coming on 20 Minute Playbook. I'm thrilled to have you on today. Thank you so much for making time.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here.
0: So, you know, there's there's a ton of stuff we're going to cover today. I, I was so excited about this interview and people will know why in a couple of minutes once we're a couple of minutes in, because there's so much to cover here. But it, it was a little challenging to figure out a place to start. But where I wanted to start and we're kind of diving into the deep end. So thanks for doing that with me is, you know, you have one of the most elaborate health tracking setups that I have ever seen. And it revolves around this single Google spreadsheet um, that you use to track a number of things daily. I think it's something like 150 different data points. Can you just share the origin? story of that Google Sheet and talk a little about what you track.
1: For sure. Yeah. So um, the origin story, uh, when I moved to the US, um, this is, uh, so I'm originally from Romania uh, and I lived in London for many years with my previous startup. And then I moved to, to New York in 2016. And in about 10 months of being in the US, I gained about 20 pounds. And that was a little bit like weird because of my whole life, I was like, quite lanky. I did it. I was like, you know, never worked out a lot in my 20s, but I never had to because I was just like thin by design. And so I wanted to see what's going on, realized I have no data. And so I built a spreadsheet that was originally just tracking my weight, my body fat. And uh, that was it initially. I just wanted to see the the trend. And then I started adding blood tests um, just because I wanted to see, you know, what's going on inside my body. Then I added workout routine, then I added, you know, blood pressure, then I added a habit tracker. And now it's become this kind of monster of a spreadsheet that has a couple of hundred biomarkers, actually, that I track on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis. And it's been immensely valuable. Like it's helped me lose the 20 pounds, but it's helped me improve performance and know exactly how various different activities or various different Types of food, et cetera, impact my health. Very specifically, recently, actually, um, recently, and saying about nine months ago, I hit a plateau in my performance, like weightlifting and um, VO2 Max was not improving and my runs were not getting better and so on. So I started working with um, Andrew Herb at Found, actually, uh, whom I know you, you interviewed on your podcast. And Andrew had a glance at my spreadsheet, and he was like, "Oh, Emmy, you don't have enough protein. You need to up. You need to double your your protein intake." Uh, I was maybe having 100 grams of protein or something like that, and uh, doubled it. And this year, I've hit all my personal records on weightlifting, and I've lost even more weight, and I'm feeling great. And that was one very kind of specific example of how going really deep into tracking all your data can be very valuable.
0: Yeah. How much time does it take you to do? And what is your pro- what is the process by which you input this data? You know, is it something you do daily? Do you batch and do it once a week? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So most of it I do weekly or monthly because it doesn't change that much. So like I track my blood pressure, for example, once a month it's, and I have a calendar Recurring calendar reminder that's like once a month on Sundays, last Sunday of the month or something. Uh, so it doesn't take a lot of time. The one part that I do uh, daily, and it takes maybe three, four minutes every morning, is I track habits. So I look at whether I meditated the privacy day, whether I had meat, whether I was stressed, well, how I slept, et cetera, et cetera. And I have this kind of GitHub-like tracker, where on the x-axis you have the the days of the year and the months, and on the y-axis you have the day of the uh, the week, and I just color-coded manually, you know, gray, yellow, um, green, red, depending on whether it's good or bad, which gives me a really beautiful way to visualize my year in terms of stress, in terms of uh, meditation, and so on. And I have found that at least for me, it really helps nudge behavior. And at the end of the day, I think to make progress in anything, but including and especially health, you just need to nudge behavior the right direction a little bit every day. And and I find tracking does that quite well, at least for me.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective. I want to ask one more question, which is, you know, as I understand it, kind of the or or not the origin story, but part of the reason that you're doing all this tracking is that you have this goal to get to peak health by the time you're 40. And, you know, I'm someone who's 36. I've been in this kind of kick. So this obviously speaks to me. Talk a little bit about why that is a goal. And um, I don't know all the work that you've put in now, which is, I don't know how many years you've been tracking habits and routines.
1: Yeah. So I've been, I've been tracking about five years now, basically since I, since I had that kind of moment, I was 30 when I moved to New York and, uh, my, all of my twenties, I was like, I never had any concern for my health. And then all of a sudden I add 20 pounds and I'm like concerned. So decided that I want to reach peak performance by the time I'm 40. And I want to then maintain that peak performance for another 40 years. And so I then asked myself, okay, what, what does peak performance mean? And how do you measure it? And so on and concluded that it, it is. As a, you know, from a health standpoint, you want to make sure that you have really strong body mass and, 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 um, very good, uh, bone density. Because as you age, if you fall, you don't want to have a fracture because then that leads to comorbidities and so on. I wanted to have mobility as I age. I wanted to obviously ensure that my internal, you know, organs are working well. So I track a lot of biomarkers. And then I, I kind of designed this program that looks at, uh, mobility it looks at you know weightlifting for um, for body composition and bone density. I do a lot of uh, martial arts which helps with mobility and so on. so I've kind of designed a program aiming to get to peak performance by the time I'm forty. And then what I've also done is I've created measures for each of the different areas that I want to hit. So basically I'm I, you know obviously, for weightlifting, I want to make sure that I'm making performance and uh, like increasing performance. So I measure, I do barbell weightlifting, and I measure the weight on the bar. And this year, I did three three fifteen deadlifts. So I was I was very happy about that. I measure VO two max for cardiovascular load, anaerobic threshold. I measure with the lactic lactic threshold test, and so on. And so that's the ultimate goal: reach peak performance by the time I'm forty. I'm thirty six too. so I'm kind of like every year chipping away at at um, adding more weight to the bar and improving VO2max and so
0: on. I mean, you're doing great if you've got 315 on the bar. So <laughs> you're headed in the right direction.
1: Actually, my, <laughs> I work with a coach, obviously, and the goal next year is to get to a thousand pounds uh, across my, all my lifts. So deadlift, squat, bench, and overhead.
0: Is that loosely two times your weight? I've heard that as like a common benchmark you want to try to hit. D- depends on the
1: lift. On deadlift, you definitely want two times your weight. Squats, two times your weight. On the overhead press, if you can do one, one and a half uh, a body weight, you're in the top 1% of the world. And I'm currently actually at 0.9 um, of, of body weight. So I'm kind of working towards one one time body weight.
0: Amazing. I want to ask one more question and then we'll move on. You know, I, it, I'm interested in the bone density piece. And I would imagine that maybe weightlifting, you know, just putting your body under heavy stresses, heavy loads is maybe a way that you're approaching bone density. How have you thought about that? Is that the main way you're doing it? Just thoughts particularly on how to get more bone density?
1: Absolutely. So there's actually a lot of research that shows that uh, um, strength training, whether it's weightlifting uh, with with weights or whether it's body weight based and so on, increases bone density. And then because of what I do, which is like uh, offer scans for people to to get a look inside the body, I also have very, very uh, good measures of bone density because I get a DEXA scan every year. I get an extra full body MRI scan every year. And that gives me a lot of information about my body composition. And I can see over time that, uh, how that progresses. And actually when I moved to the U S again, because in my twenties, I didn't do a lot of like weightlifting and stuff like that. I did a DEXA scan and my de- bone density was actually, I don't remember the exact number, but it was in the, in the you know worst quartile, I think. And now uh, the, the last DEXA scan that I did, which was in March of this year, I'm in the top quartile in terms of density. So I'm a big believer in uh, applying experiments to yourself and then seeing if those experiments work and then using data to determine how well they work for you.
0: Yeah, it's a perfect segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is you know for anyone listening, you can I would encourage you whether it's now or later to go to Emmy's website and look at Emmy Gall, so that's e m i g a l dot com slash challenges. And one of the things that you've done since two thousand eight. Uh, so for 14 plus years now is you've done a yearly challenge and you've documented all those on your website. Um, and I'm just going to quickly read a little bit of copy because I think it is a great job of kind of framing up what it is. This is a copy from your website. Outside work, I enjoy spending time with my wife and learning new things. To address the latter, I've taken on a new challenge every year since 2008. Some of the most challenging and interesting ones were sleeping two and a half hours per day for two months, which sounds brutal. So that's my yep, polyphasic <laughs> sleep. And then, you know, reading a book per week and training my memory with a world memory champion i'm going to ask a couple of questions about a few of the particular challenges but just to start talk a little about why you decided to do these and what the you know what the experience has been like to choose one of these each year
1: yeah you know it's, it it actually started as a very much as a joke back in 2008 a friend of mine i was still living in romania i moved to uh, the uk in 2009 and a friend of mine came to me and was like hey I'm, I, I want to try this thing. It's called polyphasic sleeping. I've, I've read about it. It sounds amazing. We could basically have 22 hours of productive time a day. And the way you do it is you sleep for an hour and a half during the night and then you sleep for 20 minutes every six hours. And apparently in history, there have been some, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a famous polyphasic sleeper. There's some kind of, uh, anecdotal evidence that Einstein might have been a polyphasic sleeper, and these are people who slept very, very little at different intervals during the day. Uh, so I tried it with this friend of mine, we did it together, and it didn't work. Like It was brutal. For about a month, we basically got no sleep whatsoever, because think about it, your brain is, is used to sleep seven, eight hours, so it takes you like 20 minutes to fall asleep on a good evening we would put our head down to fall asleep. It would take us like an hour to fall asleep. And then a half hour later, we'd have to wake up. And then we'd put our head down, you know, six hours later to sleep for 20 minutes and we couldn't fall asleep in 20 minutes. And so we, it was a brutal month. Second month started getting better, but it wasn't, I was like a walking zombie. You know, it's just like, it wasn't, I I wasn't getting the 22 hours of productive time that I wanted. However, I really enjoyed the, uh, the, the attempt at something really challenging for the body. I used to drink a lot of coffee. I used to smoke back then. And to do this experiment, I quit both. And then I didn't take up smoking again. Um, so I, I saw some very clear benefits from running this experiment. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to continue. So since then, every single year, I've run an experiment and they've been wide ranging and and incredibly fun.
0: Yeah, they've been all over the map. I mean, so you talked about, you know, polyphasic sleep. There's reading a book per week. There's training my memory. There's also some amazing ones. I want to ask some follow up questions on shortly, like, you know, interviewing elderly people and ask them a set of 10 questions about life and then posting that on your blog. Um, One of the questions I wanted to ask is, so you've done a lot of these. If you had to recommend a single challenge to people listening, whether it's something to think about, something to attempt, even for a short period of time, is there one that you would recommend to others or recommend the most? I think
1: I would say two have made the biggest impact on my life, and and you'll see that there, there are obvious ones once I mention them. But I, you know, I I think it's really important that I do. The first one is I had an experiment where I, where I started working out. And this was like um, in my late twenties, I want to say, and my goal was to work out uh, every day for a year, and I think I worked out six days a week for a year. And what that did is it got me into this habit of working out. Um, and that, that's been quite great. The other experiment that has made a huge impact was reading a book a week. I now, every weekend, sit down and spend six, seven hours and read a book cover to cover. And I have the focus, the ability to just go in and finish a book in one sitting, almost no matter how thick it is, you know, so like I can probably take a 700 page book and, and, you know, push through it in, in a single day. And having that ability means that I consume a lot of books. And I, I, I think consuming books is one of the best ways we have uh, as, as a species to better ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Is there anything that you learned? You know, I I just imagine. So obviously you're reading a book a week. You're, you are training things. You're training your ability to focus for a long period of time. You're, you're, you know, you're training your ability to just sit and just read and not get off track. Besides that, were there, was there anything practical about the way that you approached it? That was unique. Meaning like, did you read at a certain time per day for someone listening that say, okay, that's amazing. I want to try to read a book a week. Any advice you'd give them tips or just little hacks?
1: Yeah, you know, by far the biggest hack is read stuff you like. You know, like I have now, I have zero FOMO about starting a book 20 pages in. I'm not, it's not for me or maybe not for me right now. I just put it down and I pick up another, another book. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I've started reading a book. I'm invested into this book. I'm, I've heard great things about it. I'm just going to try to read it. For me, it's like you know what—if it—if it, if I'm not interested in that topic or that um, story, right then I'm just gonna like put it on the side, pick another book, and then maybe come back to that book at a different time when I might enjoy it more. That's made the biggest impact by far in how many, how much, how many books I. Guess. Yeah,
0: because then you just actually want to read every time you actually sit down to read. <laughs> then there's no pressure; you can stop at any point in time.
1: You have to want to enjoy it, right? Otherwise, you're not going to want to do it consistently. You might do it like you did it in school. You know, you have to push through this. But you wouldn't look forward to those seven hours of reading. And I always look forward to those seven hours of
0: reading. I mean, that's one of the most under-discussed parts of just habit formation is like find a way to just do stuff you like and then find ways to enjoy it more and then find ways to not do what you don't want to like. You know, it's, it's actually somewhat simplistic, at least in some of those some of those areas. And
1: actually, a, a kind of a corollary to this um, that I learned in the experiment when I was working out um, was working out every day for seven days a week is actually really, really hard. I don't know how many people have tried it, but it, it's not easy. And I struggled with it for a fair amount of time. And then the kind of tiny habit that ended up working for me the best was if I would wake up in the morning and didn't feel like working out, what I would do is I would put my running shoes on. And I'd be like, if I don't feel like working out after this, I'm going to take them off, have a coffee, go on with my day. But obviously, nine times out of 10, I'm like, oh, I have my running shoes on. I may as well just go out and, um, and, and work out. So I, I think that's very uh, applicable to books too. like, just read the first five pages, you know, and you'll notice that if it's something that you like, you, those five pages will turn 50 and 100 or 500 and 500 before you know it, you've read the book. At least that's what happens to me.
0: Yeah. It's like eliminating friction and, and eliminating excuses to not go and do it. Exactly. Which makes a lot of sense. Okay. I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions specifically around some of the challenges. And one of them, you know, this is from 2020 that I thought was was interesting. Um, I've re- recently gone through this book and because um, I, you know, I've read pieces of antifragile. I finally did the exercise of like, I just need to go cover to cover and actually, and I did enjoy it. But one of the things you did, you know, I, I'm just going to read a little bit of what you described on your website that you did, you know, um, so 2020 inspired by Nassim Taleb's antifragile, I'm working on creating more antifragility in my life. To identify areas of fragility, I'm spending 2020 documenting all the major mistakes I've made. My hypothesis is that I will find patterns emerging and those patterns will shine light on fragile areas I can improve. How did that go? Did you find fragile areas? What was kind of the outcome of that challenge?
1: Yeah, so it went very well. And actually documenting one's mistakes is a very useful practice because it helps you think through the the, the um, things that you maybe should improve or could improve upon the way you do things. I did that. I I have maybe a dozen or so what I would call big mistakes. I've been fortunate in like, for the most part, being pretty good at, at making good decisions, but I've made poor decisions many times. And I have concluded that almost every single time when I made a poor decision, I made it because I cared what others would think of me. Which was, uh, I had, I, it did not occur to me that that would be my conclusion. But that was a conclusion. And, and um, right now I care very little about what others um, uh, uh, think about me because I've worked on it. And I've been like, you know, it doesn't really matter what, uh, like nobody cares at the end of the day, you know, about um, me, you know. And so um, I shouldn't care as much about what they think about me. And so that was a big insight. It was uh, difficult going through and documenting. And, you know, I'm very methodical. So documenting in my case meant I went through, you know, line by line of what happened, the series of events, how they unfolded and so on. And I now continue with that. So whenever I'm like, I think I've made like an incorrect decision, I go and I document it and I have a, a whole log of them. And it's helpful to revisit them every now and then.
0: I'd love to go a little bit deeper on kind of two 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 areas of what we just talked about. One of them is just, you know, the benefits of sitting down and thinking through an area where you made a mistake. You know, I've done this recently as well, too. Um... And it is enormously beneficial, but, and there is a, you know, I think one of the benefits at least that I took away from it was it kind of, it encourages you and it helps you to think about yourself a little bit more dispassionately and to actually, you know, almost like a scientist you're, you're studying this thing. You're not judging yourself in the moment. You're just trying to uncover and log and think about and analyze. Is that how you would, you know, is that a benefit that you've seen as well? And how else would you talk about the benefits of doing that? Like just some of the skills you're learning.
1: Yeah. So the nice thing about documented mistakes once they've happened and some time has passed is you can do it very objectively. And if you happen to have a, a very clear way of looking at the way the events fall unfolded, so you have some emails, you have some stuff, then it kind of really helps you objectively assess what actually happened once like the emotions have passed and so on. And so it's useful because you can learn from the, um, from the experience. I also find it really useful to revisit these. So, like, I wrote them down. I have them in a folder and I revisit them maybe on a monthly basis, uh, maybe every couple of months. And I don't like, I just click on each of them and I read through and I'm like, oh, okay, I was an idiot. It helps me remember to not make the same mistakes again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. I want to talk about one more, which was, well, okay. I have to ask about two more. So let's start with 2014 first. In 2014, I'm just going to read this again and we can, we can talk about it. Um, You know, you trained your memory with a world memory champion for a year in order to be able to remember anything. That was awesome. It was just the commentary you provided. The question that I wanted to ask is, I think it would be, I think people listening would be fascinated to hear a little bit about what the, what does it mean to train your memory? What are some of the things you did there? And then, you know, if you could give everybody a cheat sheet or one hack or one, thing that's an effective tool to be able to do is there anything you can share there any simple easy tools
1: yeah so there's a story behind each of these experiments and the story there was that i had forgotten to call my mom for her birthday the year prior so like 2013 and um i felt really bad about it and my sisters told me the following day i think hey you didn't call mom and i was i was quite upset and so i decided you know what i'm never going to forget stuff like that again so made it my Experiment for the following year. Found this guy, Mark Channon, who is an incredible memory guy, and he was a memory champion in I think late late nineties. He had a show on the BBC training people to improve their memory. And when I say train, I mean train in the in the most uh, direct you know way you can think about that, which is you have some strategies as you do in anything, and then you just apply the strategies day in and day out, and you practice them until they become muscle memory. And an example that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of is the concept of a memory palace. So if I tell you to uh, think of the road between your house and your favorite coffee shop, you will right now be able to picture it everyone listening will be able to be like oh yeah i see everything every single building every single sign it's in your memory a memory palace basically attaches something that you want to remember to areas in this memory palace so let's say that you wanted to remember the first 200 digits of pi there would be Two steps to that. One, and I I know because I used to recite the first 200 digits of pi just for fun at dinner parties. And there are two steps to being able to do that. The first one is for every number from zero to 99, I used to have an image associated. So, like, I don't know, number 53 would be an elephant. And then what you would do is on your way to your coffee shop, you know, right outside your building. Of a house, there's an elephant and that's, you know, the first uh, two digits you want to remember. And then you just kind of put these objects all over your path from home to, uh, to the coffee shop. And it sounds silly, but it works incredibly well. A very practical example of a memory strategy is remembering names, right? How do you go about remembering someone's name? Because like you're just meeting them, you're shaking hands, you're already thinking about what you're going to say next. And before you know it, you don't know what they're called, right? There's a very simple strategy that I now apply every single time that's really effective, which is I find the closest funny thing I can think of that kind of sounds like the name of the person and I just attach it to their head. So if I'm meeting someone called Rich, I will just see a bunch of dollar banknotes around their head. And then next time I see them, I'm I'm very likely to remember that they're called Rich because I will just see their head. You know, and banknotes floating around. It sounds silly, but like uh, it works. They, these strategies are incredibly effective.
0: Well, it's fascinating that in both of those examples, there's a visual spatial element to memory and to trying to remember these things, which kind of, which makes sense. One, it seems like you're including other senses and, you know, making it a richer experience. But yeah, two, it's like less 2D, less floppy disk, more three-dimensional immersive.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, Mark, who who trained me, had this really, a phrase that really stuck with me, which is that a person with a great memory is a person with a great imagination. Because if you have great you know, imagination when you're like speaking with someone and you're trying to picture things, to remember things and so on, it makes you more present. And it makes you more likely when you're looking at that person to remember the things because they're seeing objects floating around them.
0: That is, I'm just make literally making a note <laughs> of this quote. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. Last question that I have to ask is, uh, and I could, you know, this is uh, a treat of an interview where I have like so many questions I want to ask, and, and the exercise is just trying to try to pare it down. Um, so the last question I'm going to ask about your yearly challenges is in 2015, and you know, I, I kind of uh, talked about it earlier, but you interviewed elderly people and asked them a set of ten questions, and you posted some of those interviews on uh, on your blog. So the question I was curious just with that is what you took away. And I think part of it would be what you took away emotionally from that experience. I imagine it was, you know, probably powerful uh, in, in many ways. And then also just what you took away if there was like a single reminder, a single lesson, a single, I don't know, just, just, just w- what you took away conceptually from those conversations as well.
1: So emotionally, uh, I'll start with that because it was indeed at times very emotional. Remember this, um, one interview with was a general called Jeff, and I bumped into him on in Union Square in San Francisco. I was there for some meetings, and I was doing my thing, and I went to the square, and I went to a, a couple of people, and all of them said, "Oh, I don't want to speak with you." And then I stumbled upon this guy, Jeff, and he was eighty-two, but like full of life, and uh, he had lost his wife, and he was traveling by himself at eighty-two, like traveling the world. And um, he told me that the biggest thing that he learned from like 82 years of life is that it all goes in an instant, you know, so that the emotional takeaway that I kind of often think about is how short life is actually. And then if you take that further a little bit, you know, and, and think about events that you might have in your life. Uh, You know, my dad's 74, he lives in Romania. I go to Romania twice a year in a good year. So that means I have another, you know, 25, 30 times max to see my dad. That really puts the shortness of life in perspective. The kind of more uh, uh, interesting rational insights from speaking with all, all these folks were, one, I started... With the, the, with some hypotheses when I started this experiment. And one of the hypotheses was that if you ask people at the end of life what mattered, uh, none of them will mention money as it. They will all say a family or whatever. And actually, most of them said that money is very, very important because you cannot bring a family up. You cannot enjoy life. You cannot travel. You cannot do anything if you don't have money. And so it wasn't money for the purpose of having money, but it was money for being able to bring up a family and enjoy happy moments with family and so on. And that was a really interesting, um, it, it changed my approach to, to things. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. Let's, let's make a bunch of money then, you know? So, wh- whereas before I had a more ambivalent attitude towards it, then I was like, you know what, it's actually important to be able to afford things with, with your family. So let's focus on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love that insight. Cause one, it's controversial, or at least you wouldn't expect that that's what you would hear. And then two, it's, you know, I think, um, yeah, to your point, uh, depending on how you grew up, you know, a lot of just people have very different perspectives on money. And what I mean by that is they, you know, I've met a lot of people that view it very negatively. And I would say that that has a, just viewing money as a negative thing and viewing the pursuit of money as a negative thing and viewing having money as a negative thing, obviously, you know, shows up in a lot of areas of your life. So I also just love that it's a, you know, I don't know, a reframing of it's, it's positive, but it's positive because it's fuel for life, not because you want to have it and be Scrooge McDuck and go dive through coins <laughs> in your
1: house. I don't and, and actually, that's a perfect segue into the second thing that I learned that kind of was a, 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 an interesting thing to, to see, which was none of these people, and I spoke with a, a whole bunch, regretted anything that had to do with work or career or profession or whatever. It was always to do with uh, family and not spending enough time with family or loved ones and not pursuing one's love. And, and it was always related. Regrets were always related to people not related to careers, which was a very interesting insight as well.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So we will link to all these in the show notes. Again, if you're curious, uh, if you've, you know, you're on your phone now or the computer, you can find these at emmygall.com slash challenges. Super cool. I'm so glad you like put those online and we're willing to talk about those. So thank you. Okay. I'm going to switch tacks and go to some of the more traditional questions that we typically ask. And the one that I wanted to start with, you know, we've talked about obviously tracking your habits before, you know, we started recording, you were talking about a tool that you use called work cycles that maybe we can, you know, put a nod in, in this answer, but the way I Typically, ask this is if people listening could shadow you for a day from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep, as creepy as that might be, what do you think they would be most surprised by in terms of how you live your life or how you work or just any aspect of your day?
1: I think that by far the uh, thing that would be most surprising would, would be the insane amount of discipline that I put into my life. So I have like every, uh, I started a very high picture. I have three things that I want to. Uh, kind of achieve in life. You know, I want to contribute an important idea. I want to work towards an important goal. I want to have a happy life with my family. That's it. Those are the three, you know, I, that's what I'm working towards to achieve those three. I kind of have every decade I put together a plan. And then every year I look at my decade plan and I put together an annual OKR doc, basically. Uh, then every month I set objectives that month and every week, I set objectives for that week. And every day I wake up and I look at all of that stuff and I make a list of things that I'm going to do that day. Every day I also review my calendar and I go like, am I working towards these goals or not? Obviously I don't succeed, you know, most days, but the process of going through and making sure that I'm working every day on something that, that is important to me uh, creates a lot of accountability, kind of self-accountability. Uh, uh, and then I'm very disciplined towards that. So like I, I I run my you know meetings. I'm never late, and I'm never one minute uh, over my meeting because I'm. But they're always stacked back to back. I uh, you know this year I'm doing an experiment. I'm not drinking, for example, because again I wanted to kind of further enhance this performance and ability to be very very disciplined. I you know make time to squeeze in five workouts a week and you know and so on so I, I think the thing that would surprise most people is the level of of discipline across every single aspect of my life that I, that I uh,
0: apply I'm gonna ask a kind of follow-up question which is you know it, that that answer is not surprising to me when I think about the spreadsheet that you use to track all those 150 biomarkers or even the yearly challenge like executing a yearly challenge requires an enormous amount of discipline so I'm not surprised by that. But it does seem like potentially you didn't used to be disciplined and this is something that you've evolved and grown into. And so I guess one of the questions there is like advice for anyone listening that wants to become more disciplined, you know, is it as simple as picking a discipline and then you've just stacked it over time? Like as you reflect back on how you got disciplined, I don't know, could you decode that for others listening? Give them advice.
1: I can actually pinpoint the moment in life when I started pursuing discipline, which was I had a. I, I was very good at math in school, in high school, and because I was very good at math, our kind of math teacher had taken me and another girl in in the class under her wing, kind of. So we would do kind of private tutoring with her in order to get even better. And I remember this one time, both myself and and this girl were there, and then we finished the session, and then. Um, my teacher was like, Emmy, you should you should stick around for another five minutes. So the girl leaves and I stick around. And she goes, Well, you know, you are much better than this girl at math. However, you are significantly lazier. Therefore, she's going to get ahead much more than you are because of that. And that for some reason made a bit of an impression on me and it, it stayed with me and I didn't do much of it through high school and so on. But then I, when I, I started my first company when I was in college and because I had both, you know, I had to go to university and run a company, it forced a little bit of discipline into me. And then um, I discovered how valuable it can be and how much stuff you can get done if you're insanely disciplined and just layered in more and more and more discipline over the years. I don't think there's any silver bullet back to it. I think it's just like you have to decide you're going to be disciplined and just like do it and be okay with the fact that most of discipline is like actually failing at discipline and then not (laughs) giving up on it.
0: Yes. Well, it also, yes, I mean, and that totally makes sense. And that's been my experience as well, too. I feel like there are part of it as well, too. Like, I think something that I've often thought about a lot as my life has become more disciplined is you, you can, you know, I don't see my life as boring. And yet I think for many people, like if they again, if they were to follow my daily routine, I you know work out in the morning. I go to the same restaurant for breakfast. I order largely the same things. It's like almost cookie cutter. And one of the best quotes that I saw recently that I was like, "There we go. That that's starting to maybe get at That what I see in discipline, which is you know is basically something along the lines of sometimes you know extreme routines can be a uh, a sign of ambition. And I was like, that's actually makes a lot of sense because you know in, in many ways you're just it's there's a boringness to it, but there's also a fulfillment in the fact you're doing all of those things all the all the the time. anyways, it's just kind of an, an observation on discipline.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, the, the way I think about it is, is life is, is essentially an accrual of things you do and decisions you make and habits you form. And you have complete agency about uh, on what those things are. And if you create a lot of discipline in doing the right things, it kind of creates a sort of positive convexity to life, right? Because you're you're doing all the right things and you can still get unlucky, but you're more likely to get lucky if you're doing all the right things, um, which would then kind of steepen the 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 kind of positive end of the uh, convexity curve for your life.
0: I'd be curious if you have a take on this. I mean, the best, you know, one of the little thought experiments or one of like the questions that's run on the loop in my mind is like, what is that, you know, if you were to try to pinpoint why discipline is valuable, what would you point at? And the way that I've kind of framed that up or thought about it is, you know, if we all know that compounding is one of the most powerful forces in the universe, what is compounding? I mean, one of the core ingredients is just literal consistency because you have to do it time and time and time again. And, you know, even just hearing that, that uh, story of your teacher, having a conversation with you about another student, it's almost like what she was saying is this student is more consistent with her practice. So she's going to make more progress. I mean, is so for you, do you Do you kind of boil it down to consistency? Does that ring true for you as well, too?
1: I couldn't have said it better. I think, you know, compounding is the most powerful force in the universe, you know, that everything compounds positively or negatively. And therefore, you want to compound positive things. And I think one way, one hack to get there is discipline.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Well, I want to ask um, a couple of closing questions. Um, And one of them, you know, so you had a challenge for a year uh, where you read a book a week. You now, you know, regularly sit down over the weekend and read. So one of my questions is just really simply, what books that you have read have had an outsized impact on you? And these can be fictional books. These can be books about business. You know, uh, when I ask that question, when you think about books that have had an outsized impact or that you just regularly recommend to others, what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, you know the the one book that I recommend to everyone that has made a, a huge impact on me is *Antifragile* by Nassim uh, Taleb, and that book. And I've actually now read all of his books m- multiple times, and that book has really made me look at my life in a, a very different terms than I did before. And you know, I'm I'm a I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an optimist, I'm a risk taker. But that book has kind of helped me layer in the concept of expected value and the concept of you know okay you're taking risk but the risk should be high enough that it has a big impact but not so high that it, you can go bust in whatever you know not financially bust, but in whatever endeavor you're you're taking and so uh, I'm a huge fan of of uh, antifragile and and uh, uh, and Taleb himself I was I was actually of a course he did and and he's a very interesting um incredibly smart um character and he really lives the the stuff he writes
0: yes he does (laughs) yeah he does and if anyone's curious about that just go follow him on twitter (laughs) exactly Yeah. yeah and you know one of the best things I think that you could say about him, or the, the thing that I would say about Nassim Taleb is he's a provocative thinker. You know, I think there's good think, there's like deep thinkers, there's, you know, uh, um, strategic thinkers. I think he's someone that just has very provocative thoughts, meaning he comes to conclusions that has insights that I don't think anyone else would get to.
1: Absolutely. And you know, he has, I disagree with him on some stuff, but he has skin in the game whenever he makes a statement. And he really, like, I'll give you an, an interesting anecdote on, uh, from this course that I did with him, because I think it illustrates the, the, how, how, to what extent he goes into the stuff that he preaches. So we, uh, we did this course, he, he runs this thing called Real World Risk Institute. Um, and we, I signed up for it, and we were doing it, it was a thing on Zoom, and midway through the course, the course was uh two weeks, he was going to Lebanon for, um, to see family, that's where he's from. And he dials in from Lebanon, midway through the course. And he goes like, guys, I'm here. I have one computer on one internet connection here. I have another computer on another internet connection here in case this internet connection drops. I have a generator in my house in case electricity drops. And if all fails, there's a driver downstairs to take me to the closest internet cafe so we can continue the course. Even like if the world collapses, and so that's kind of the extent to which he like practices what he preaches, you know. Which I I was was quite impressed by that. And and, uh, but but he is a character on Twitter.
0: (laughs) No, he is. He is, and yeah, he's he's polarizing, and so I think people, everyone has a strong opinion. But um, I think he's someone that you know, if you can just look past. any, any, any parts of his personality that might be off putting and just focus on the ideas he's presenting. The ideas are incredibly strong and interesting, and they're very rooted in a lot of research. So I'm going to ask one more question, but before I do, I just want to thank you. You know, this interview is about two times longer than we normally do. Thank you to everyone (laughs) listening. No, this, no, 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 this has been, this has been amazing. So thank you so much for the time, Emmy. Um, The last question, and this is one that I always ask is, you know, if you could go back to the start of your career and whisper some words of advice in your ear. Or whisper a reminder in your ear. Is there anything, knowing what you know now, having been through everything you've been, that you would tell yourself?
1: Actually, there is. And it's very related to what we were just talking about, Taleb. And the the one thing that I've learned is that life is very path-dependent. And so what is really important very, very early on in life is to increase the optionality of this path-dependence. So, You know, what you want as a, you know, young 20 year old is to be able to pursue any and all options that present themselves with a potentially high uh, payoff, you know, from a career, life, whatever you want to achieve standpoint. But you can only pursue those options if you are, if you have the optionality to do so, if you are open to those opportunities. And that might mean, you know, not choosing a, you know, career very early on. It might mean not getting a job and just instead exploring various different things. Like whatever that means for you, it is important to to absorb the concept of optionality and keeping options open so that you can pursue any path that might be better than the current one.
0: I've always really appreciated that advice and I've tried to live that advice. On the flip side, you know, I feel like for some people that advice can almost be don't have conviction, just be open to a lot of different things. Um, is that how you think about the cynical view of it? You know, what is the opposite of being path dependent? <laughs> I guess.
1: I don't think there is like the the opposite of being path dependent is being very, very, um, having very, very strong views. And I, I believe it's important to have strong opinions, but keep them very, hold them very weakly, you know, strong opinions, weekly help. Like if you, you should obviously pursue something that you're really interested in, that you think is really important for you, but not to the extent that you... Uh, put like, you know, blinders on and you don't see the uh, the rest of the, the, the opportunities that might present themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love the connection you made there, which is it does seem like those are perfectly connected. This strong, strong, you know, opinions loosely held and you want to have a strong point of view about where you're going, but be open to a lot of optionality.
1: Absolutely. Very Absolutely. related. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for the time, Emmy. This has been so much fun.
1: Thank you, Daniel. This is great.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Emmy Gall on Twitter at Emmy Gall. That's at E-M-I-G-A-L. And you can learn more about Ezra, which is bringing fast and affordable cancer screening to everyone at ezra.com. That's E-Z-R-A dot You can also find a searchable transcript of this episode, as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper into the topics we explored today at outlieracademy.com slash 145. That's outlieracademy.com slash 145. For more from Emmy Gall, listen to episode 146, where we decode how Ezra has brought down the cost of cancer screening via MRI by 80% and the time required to get screened by 66% all by harnessing the power of AI and machine learning. We cover how the cure for cancer already exists and why it's early proactive detection, as well as the incredible technology behind Ezra's approach to cancer screening. You can find that episode at outlieracademy.com slash 146. For more from Outlier Academy, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok. Subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at cheatsheetnewsletter.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Outlier Academy, where we have videos of all of our interviews, as well as our favorite short clips from every single episode. Or visit outlieracademy.com for more incredible 20-minute playbook episodes. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Tuesday.